Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Nighttime sharpens, heightens each sensation. Darkness wakes and stirs imagination. Silently the senses abandon their defenses, helpless to resist the notes I write. For I compose the music of the night. So why are we starting the show today with the music of the night? by the incomparable Michael Crawford. The reason is that it's a momentous day on Broadway today because this afternoon, just two hours from now, the curtain will rise for the last time on the Phantom of the Opera. The show is closing after 35 years. That is by far the longest run of any Broadway show in history. And indeed, it is a magical show. Uh, the music, of course, composed by Andrew Lloyd Webber. And um, it has played at the Majestic Theater in New York and, of course, has played in numerous cities and touring productions around the world. And, uh, uh, of course, uh, originally started in London. Uh, unfortunately, after COVID, the crowds did not come back in uh, large numbers to the Broadway shows. And Phantom is an extremely expensive show to, to run. Apparently, it costs over a million dollars a week to run the show because there are about 150 people in the crew. That includes, of course, the cast and all of the backstage people. Uh, very large orchestra. Uh, so you've got to take in a lot of money per week in order to make ends meet. And uh, unfortunately, wasn't happening. The show is, of course, still running many touring productions around uh, the world and will probably experience a revival sometime in, in the future. <laughs> it is one of my favorite Broadway shows. Uh, I rank it certainly among the, the top three. I never saw it with the original Michael Crawford uh, because uh, that was back in the 1986 in New York. I couldn't get tickets at that time. I have seen it uh, many times since in a number of cities uh, around the world. And each production was uh, spectacular. It just is uh, it's a great show. Uh, a traveling tour came through in uh, Montreal. And of course, there was a production in Toronto that ran for... 10 years. Anyway, uh, given the fact that uh, uh, it is the last uh, day that Phantom can be seen in New York, uh, I thought that we'd uh, have a little bit of fun and ask you some interesting questions uh, about the show. So let me throw out a few questions and see whether how many of these you guys can answer. Uh, who played the Phantom in the Canadian touring version? of the show and uh, he played it here in Montreal. That's one question. Next, what Quebec singing star played the role of Phantom in the Toronto version? 
Who played the Phantom in the 1925 silent version? Who starred in the 2004 film version of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom of the Opera? So if you know any of the answers to those questions, you can text us at 514-800 or give us a call at 514-790-0800. And of course, you can give us a call with any other questions about science that, uh, that you may have. Okay, just let me just continue uh, um, for a few more moments here with the, uh, with the Phantom uh, because uh, I've... Uh, always interested in you know special effects in in shows and uh, there certainly are a lot of special effects in uh, in the phantom uh, of course there's the requisite fog that you have in so many state shows today but uh, it is particularly uh, effective in the, the classic scene where the phantom travels with uh, Christine in a boat across the underground lake and uh, of course there's a lot of mist and uh, you you have the uh, carbon dioxide vapors uh, and the way that that works is uh, carbon dioxide vapors are very very cold uh, because they are released from solid carbon dioxide and what happens is that moisture in the air condenses around the cold vapor and uh, you get the uh, smoke effect and of course it doesn't rise because carbon dioxide is heavier than air so you get this mist all over the ground which is pretty neat there's also a scene where um, the phantom sends out uh, sort of bolts of, of light from his uh, uh, you know rod uh, and uh, that is done with flash paper uh, that's a pretty easy thing to do flash paper is the nitrocellulose and they have a mechanism in the wand that uh, has sort of a, a lighter, very much like a cigarette lighter, and it lights the, the paper and it, uh, a spring sends it uh, shooting out. Uh, my favorite uh, sort of illusion in the show, though, is the very final scene. And uh, this is when uh, the phantom vanishes. He um, sits down in a, in a chair uh, he puts a cloth over his head, and you can see his shape underneath the cloth. And when the cloth is uh, pulled away, the phantom is gone, uh, having vanished, and only the uh, mask is left on the chair, and the spotlight focuses in on the mask as the orchestra plays the grand finale. Well, that, uh, that chair has a very interesting history, and it is referred to today as the Decolta Chair. And um, it is named after a French magician of the late uh, 19th century. And uh, that French magician was uh, uh, Boitier de Colta, although he wasn't uh, born with that name. He was born as uh, Joseph Boitier. And he took the name de Colta in homage to the impresario Julius Vida de Colta, who convinced him to make magic his career. And it was a very, very successful career. Uh, de Colta was a contemporary of Robert Houdin, who was probably the elite magician at the time in the late 1800s. And of course, it was uh, 
his name that uh, uh, was stolen by uh, Eric Weiss, who became Harry Houdini. Anyway, uh, not only was the Colta uh, a fantastic magic performer, but he was also an inventor of uh, magical illusions. And uh, it was he who developed the so-called the Colta chair. And this has been uh, performed in many different ways. And uh, usually it is a, a lady, the magician's assistant, who sits down in the chair. She's covered with a cloth and the cloth is removed and she has vanished. Well, of course, people don't actually vanish. <laughs> there, there's always a secret to that, um, that illusion. And the secret is in the chair. Uh, it's very difficult to describe what it is, and I have no great desire to describe it anyway, because uh, no, I, I don't like to divulge the way that magic effects are, are carried out. But anyway, the, the chair that is used in the Phantom of the Opera is a modified version of the Dakota chair. And uh, I, I'll just give you <clears throat> a bit of a clue. Uh, there is no stage trap that is needed in order to perform the uh, Phantom's disappearance. And it's, it's just a, it's a great effect. And, uh, you know, it's a spectacular way for the uh, show to end. Now, the Colta did not invent only this uh, chair. Uh, he had a number of other uh, illusions that he invented. Uh, another very famous one was the vanishing birdcage. And this is where the magician comes on stage holding a, a small birdcage uh, in his two hands. And inside you can kind of see a bird sort of fluttering about. And members of the audience are, are allowed to come up on the stage and uh, they can uh, uh, put their hands on top of the, the cage uh, while the magician is still holding the two sides of the cage. And then in a flash, despite the audience members having their hands on this cage, it vanishes. That was the invention of the Colta. And I, I think you can probably guess how it is done. Uh, the cage, uh, of course, is collapsible and... Uh, it is attached to an elastic and it has drawn up the magician's uh, arm. Needless to say, the bird inside is not real uh, because if it were real, it would be squashed. So the bird is made of, of rubber. Anyway, the vanishing birdcage was made uh, uh, famous uh, uh, by uh, Harry Blackstone, uh, the magician, and his son, uh, Harry Blackstone Jr., also performed it uh, extremely well. So now you know a little bit about the illusions in the Phantom of the Opera. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Okay, I think we have uh, Lillian on the line from uh, DDO, possibly with an answer. Yes, hi. Um, hi. I was in Toronto with my husband, I guess it was the late 80s or early 90s, and I wanted to see a show, and uh, there were these ticket booths outside, on, uh, I guess outside of the, uh, the Eaton Centre, and I thought, well, I'm going to get tickets. And I tried, and all they had was uh, the back of the theater on bar stools. So I bought the tickets. My husband really didn't want to go. But I bought the tickets, and he 
he, he thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think it was Calm Wilkinson. Yes, was, it was. Cool. Yeah, he originated the role in Toronto. That's yes, right. a- absolutely. And I just dug up my, uh, then my husband received from his office the two-pack CD of the Phantom, and it's with Michael Crawford. I just dug it out. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well, yeah. Lis- so don't just Wilkins. dig it out, listen to it. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, yeah, I, uh, I guess it will play in my car. <laughs> okay, then. Thank you. Very good. Okay, I have some uh, other answers texted in. Gerald. Uh, Gerald also knew that Cone Wilkinson uh, originated it in that, at the Pantages Theatre in Toronto. And he also got the other question sort of half right because I had asked uh, uh, what Quebecois singing star played the role of Phantom in Toronto. Uh, and that was Rene Simard, although Gerald said that he played it in Quebec. No, he didn't. Uh, as far as I know, he didn't play it in Quebec, unless he sometime maybe played it in the French version. I, I don't know. But he certainly played it in um, uh, in Toronto. All right, so I'm still looking for uh, the answer to who, who played it in the original 1925 silent film version and who played it in the 2004 film version of, of Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> but let me give you a... a couple of other questions. Oh, okay, and still, uh, who played it in the touring version in Canada, the version that played in Montreal at Place des Arts? Who starred in that? Uh, okay, one other question, uh, last one about the Phantom. The chandelier, of course, which uh, is very famous as it crashes uh, to the floor during the show, uh, that uh, chandelier is the replica of one found where. So the chandelier that is used in the Phantom of the Opera stage performance is modeled on the original that is found where? You give us a call at 514-790-800 or text us at 514-800. You know, there's so much talk these days about the microbiome. So let me talk about it a little bit. Bacteria can cause disease. <laughs> About that, there's absolutely no doubt. Uh, cholera, syphilis, pneumonia, diphtheria, tuberculosis, meningitis, host of other ailments caused by these microscopic single-celled organisms. Now, thanks to antibiotics, these diseases can now be treated. Uh, antibiotic resistance, though, is a constant concern. Bacteria are everywhere, but you know what? They're not all bad. Our bodies teem with a huge menagerie of bacteria, some of which help extract nutrients from food and fight off their more dangerous brethren, protecting us from disease. Maybe even protecting us from becoming overweight. In the womb, babies are in a sterile environment. There's not a bacterium in sight. But as they emerge into the world, the first living species they encounter are the bacteria that inhabit the birth canal. Now, these microbes are passed on from mother to baby, and together with others picked up from breast milk, food, water, pet soil, and other people, eventually colonize the body, particularly the gut. And collectively, these are referred to as the microbiome. Now, these bacteria multiply until their cells outnumber human cells by, and there's arguments, you know, about just by how much. Originally, it was thought to be 10 to 1, then then it was 
three to one. Now maybe it's one to one. Anyway, there are at least as many bacterial cells in our gut as there are total cells in the human body. Uh, so if we go by number of cells, we are to a large extent bacterial instead of human. An increasing number of studies now suggest that the microbiome replete with bacteria imparted during birth may play a role in protection against various diseases. According to some studies, babies born by cesarean section and therefore not exposed to the large variety of bacteria present in the birth canal are at greater risk of becoming host to bad bacteria, which may predispose them to diseases such as celiac, type 1 diabetes, and perhaps even obesity. Exactly how this happens isn't totally clear, but the answer may lie in chemicals made by some bacteria that leak into the bloodstream. For example, mice with autism-like symptoms have a different mix of gut microbes than normal mice. Perhaps chemicals produced by some of these bacteria find their way to the brain. It is noteworthy that when these mice are treated with beneficial bact bacteria, such as Bactoridase fragilis, their symptoms improve. Maybe the treatment of autism in humans will come from altering the microbial mix in the gut. Maybe. All bacteria in our digestive tract compete for the same food supply, which basically is furnished by whatever we eat. The good bacteria, starting with the ones we accumulate early in life, prevent multiplication of those that can cause problems by limiting their food supply. One such problem may be the release of endotoxins from the cell walls of some of the bad bacteria. When these chemicals leak into the circulatory system, they can impair the action of insulin, meaning that the glucose, which would normally be absorbed and used to generate energy, instead ends up being converted to fat. Result is weight gain. Experiments with mice throw light on this problem. Given a low dose of such an endotoxin, mice become obese and develop diabetes. The same thing happens when they are fed a high-fat diet. That's no great surprise, but what is interesting is that the high-fat diet also results in increased levels of endotoxin. It seems that fat, as in a junk food diet, causes nasty microbes capable of releasing endotoxins to multiply at the expense of the good bacteria. For the mice, the fatty diet made the mice's gut more permeable, allowing more endotoxins into circulation. What this means is that weight control is not only a question of calories in and calories out. The wrong kind of food can contribute to weight gain beyond just the calories provided by feeding bacteria capable of producing endotoxins. And those endotoxins also spur inflammation, which is associated with all sorts of conditions, ranging from heart disease to arthritis. All right. Now, of course, the question that I'm sure is, is uh, going through your mind now is, how can the release of endotoxins be reduced? By starving the bacteria that produce them from the food in the first place. And the food that they like is basically our junk food diet. That will cause that will cause the problem. So what we need to do is curb those bacteria to cause weight loss. Another way is to foster the growth of good bacteria and have them crowd out the nasty ones. And what do these good bacteria like to feast on? Soluble plant fiber. 
fiber is the component of plants that cannot be digested. And uh, these then pass into the colon, where to various degrees, depending on the composition of the fiber, it can serve as food for bacteria. And this can result in multiplication of the bacteria, as well as the production of compounds by the bacteria that are beneficial for health, such as butyric acid and vitamin K. Okay, so where do you find soluble fiber? You'll find it in oat bran, in barley, nuts, seeds, beans, lentils, peas, some fruits and vegetables like bananas, garlic, and asparagus. The addition of soluble fiber to the diet of the mice eliminated the release of endotoxins. So these prebiotics, as we call them, that is these foods that feed bacteria, uh, they encourage the growth of bifidobacteria, and these keep the bad bacteria in check. Moral of the story, take good care of your bacteria, feed them soluble fiber, and they will take care of you. As one researcher quipped, in gut we trust. All right, you're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll check news and be right back. Grade A milk emulsified, maltodextrin alkalide, silicon dioxalite, lots of sugar. Hey, all right. Calcified synthetic salt, artificial barley malt, glycerin and aspartate, folic acid. That tastes great. Monosodium glutamate, dehydrated calcinate, soybean oil, butter fat, caramel center. All of that. All right, we're still looking for answers. Uh, I still would like to know if you know who starred in the 2004 film version of The Phantom of the Opera. That was the Andrew Lloyd Webber's production. Uh, who played the Phantom in the 1925 silent version? I had one answer to that as Rudolph Valentino. No, it was not he. Who played it in uh, Montreal in the Canadian touring version? I'll give you a clue. The, uh, the actor uh, already had been on CBC TV playing the role of a mannequin in a children's show called Today's Special. So who was that? So those are hanging out there. But let me ask you another question in case you are not experts in Phantom of the Opera, but are experts in, in, uh, in science. So how about this? To whom did Martin Luther refer when he said, quote, This fool wishes to reverse the entire science of astronomy, but sacred scripture tells us that Joshua commanded the sun to stand still and not the earth. Okay, so to whom was Martin Luther referring as the fool who said the quote that I, I just related? If you know the answer, Call us, 514-790-800. You can also text your questions and comments to 514-800. Any of you ever been to an animal cafe? <laughs> These things exist. Uh, well, the whole concept started in Taiwan in 1998. And that was the world's first cat cafe. No, they didn't serve coffee to cats. And they didn't serve cats to people. Well, not to eat anyway, but they did serve cats to people in another way. The idea was that customers could mingle with cats without the responsibility of owning a pet 
and at the same time enjoy a cup of joe. A Japanese tourist was taken with the concept and introduced cat cafes to Japan, a country infatuated with cats. Since Japanese apartments are small and usually prohibit pets, the cat cafes afforded an opportunity to have a cat experience. These cafes soon multiplied like rabbits, and now there are some 150 cat cafes in Japan, and they've been joined by, yep, a rabbit cafe, where customers can stroke the little furry animals. Tokyo also features a hedgehog cafe, and there are sheep, raccoon, and owl cafes as well. Similar cafes have opened up around the world, and we used to have one in Montreal, which was Le Chatereux. I don't think it exists anymore. But we do have uh, a, a restaurant here that does allow dogs. That's, uh, that's on, down on St. Patrick Street. Very, very nice place. You can go there, dine, and your dogs can dine at the same time. There's even a swimming pool for dogs there. Anyway, proponents of such cafes claim that interacting with the animals has a therapeutic effect. Stress is reduced, blood pressure is lowered, levels of serotonin, that's the happiness neurotransmitter, uh, as well as oxytocin, the so-called love chemical, are increased. There's also a boost in endorphins, the body's own pain-killing substance. Well, maybe, yeah, maybe not. Uh, the most unusual animal cafe is the reptile cafe, and that's in Cambodia, in Phnom Penh, where you can have your coffee as an albino python curls around your arm and a scorpion scampers across the table. Hardly conducive to reducing anxiety, one would think. Uh, these cafes are not without controversy. While interacting with animals may reduce stress in people who enjoy petting them, there's a worry that as far as the animals are concerned, they may experience increased stress since lifestyle in the cafes is not suited for some of the creatures. Maybe a duck cafe would be in order in Montreal. I could go for that. Customers can pet ducks and uh, maybe I can go and talk to them about uh, quackery as they are playing around with the ducks. All right, I think Richard from Langay has an answer. Richard. Yeah, would it be Nicholas Copernicus? Yes, very good, Nicholas Copernicus. I'm uh, glad you got that right because uh, I've asked that question in other contexts before and most people say Galileo. And uh, uh, Copernicus, of course, was before Galileo. Uh, he died in 1543. And that was the year that his work, classic work, which is called On the Revolution of the Heavenly Spheres, was published. Now, that book was banned by the Vatican in 1660, and it did not become widely known until Galileo and Kepler popularized it. And Galileo, of course, was convicted of heresy uh, for that. Uh, but finally, in the late 17th century, Newton's work uh, led to the acceptance uh, and uh, by the late 18th century, of course, the idea that the Earth went around the sun uh, had become widely uh, accepted. Um, Copernicus was originally buried in an unmarked grave, but his remains were eventually identified by DNA analysis, believe it or not. 
they had remnants of DNA from, uh, from a skull, and they matched it to the DNA of hairs that were tucked into pages of a book that Copernicus is known to have owned. Uh, and now he has a black granite tombstone that features a golden sun uh, encircled by uh, six planets. Now, although uh, Copernicus, of course, got right the idea that the uh, Earth revolved around the sun, he still believed that the sun was the center of the uh, universe. Okay, so thanks very much, uh, Richard, for that. And uh, you got that right. Okay, we also have Judy on the line from Cote St. Luke. She wants to talk to me about a duck cafe. Judy. Yes, you forgot about the Ritz Carlton garden they have oh well okay <laughs> well they yeah but the, but there's the ducks are floating around in the pool yeah. right you, you 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 don't get to play with them you don't get to coddle with them and stroke well, you their can feathers if you go to you the can? pool yeah okay well i guess we can kind of call that a duck cafe right okay <laughs> <laughs> I, I bet it would cost you quite a bit to to go there and enjoy the ducks well right? it was um for very special occasions, it's worth it. Yeah, it is. It's a very nice place. And good food. All right. Okay, we'll give you credit for calling that a duck cafe. Okay. <laughs> okay, thanks. Bye-bye. All right, so I guess we have our uh, uh, animal cafe here in, uh, in uh, Montreal as well. All right, since uh, you guys managed to get right the question about uh, uh, who Martin Luther was uh, talking about, and it was, of course, Copernicus, let me ask you another one. Uh, what is lime in the context of being in the limelight? And that, I, I guess, fits into our discussion of uh, closing of the Phantom of the Opera, because, uh, you know, lime... We know what limelight is. You want to be in the limelight when you're on the stage. But what is the lime in the context of being in the limelight? If you know the answer to that, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. And, of course, you can also text your questions and comments to uh, 514-800. Okay, we do have a correct answer uh, about the uh, actor who played... Uh, the Phantom in the original 1925 silent film version. And that, of course, was Lon Chaney. Lon Chaney was a classic silent film uh, uh, actor. Uh, it's an interesting film. Uh, I think you can find at least some fragments of it online, the original uh, Phantom of the Opera. Uh, of course, he doesn't look anything like the, the uh, current uh, version. Uh, but uh, the, the story is, is indeed the correct story. Anyway, you're listening to Dr. Joe Show. Okay, we have Sean on the line from Westmount. Hey, Sean. Hey, how are you? Okay, you got okay, an answer so for me. So the lime and limelight has to do with the light that was used uh, back then in the chemical compound that was in said light. At first, I thought it was the the stage that they used that was some kind of lime rock, but it's actually the the the, the light that they used. It's, um, well, what? Yes, but what is lime? What chemical is it? Calcium oxide. 
Very good. Very good. You knew that or you had to look it up? No, I had to look it up, yeah. to be honest. But uh, okay, that's, like I that's said, originally, fair. I thought it was, uh, yeah. I thought it was the, you know, the lime rock that was made, that the stage was made out of. But, no, but you it's, know what? No, I learned something right. today, Dr. Joe. Good. Well, I hope you learn uh, something every week from me. All right. Thanks very much. Anyway, let me let me elaborate on that answer a little bit. Uh, obviously, before electricity, theatrical stages uh, still had to be lit. So how were they lit? They were lit with limelight. And uh, the light was spectacular. And, and indeed, so is the chemistry involved, although maybe a little scary. Uh, lime is calcium oxide. It's a, a granular white compound, and it becomes incandescent when heated. So you put a lens in front of the glowing calcium oxide, and presto, you have limelight. Well, starting in the early 1800s, the flame to heat the calcium oxide was generated by burning hydrogen in the presence of oxygen. But this was long before these gases could be purchased in cylinders. They had to be generated at the site. And hydrogen was generated under the stage by reacting zinc with sulfuric acid, and oxygen was produced by heating a mix of potassium chlorate with manganese dioxide. And these gases were then stored in large bellows, uh, you know, large bags. And when pressure was applied to release them, uh, they could be released at a controlled rate, and uh, they would burn. The flame was directed at the uh, lime, and the lime would glow, and it would shine uh, a bright light onto the stage. Unfortunately, because of the use of limelight and flames, uh, theater fires were very, very common. And uh, that's when uh, the iron curtains were introduced that would come down and separate the stage from the audience in case there was a, a fire. I remember, I remember that very well going to the theater when I, when I was young that uh, the theaters had these uh, iron uh, curtains. Uh, today, of course, we no longer have this, uh, this concern uh, because of the very sophisticated modern spotlights that uh, we have. And, uh, but, you know, lighting a show of the uh, caliber of, uh, of Phantom takes much more than just uh, <laughs> single spotlights. There are literally hundreds of lights used during uh, uh, Broadway shows, especially uh, Phantom. Uh, including uh, the ones on the chandelier. There are, uh, I don't know how many bulbs there would be on that chandelier, but certainly dozens. And uh, so I still have the uh, question outstanding there about uh, that chandelier, the, the classic chandelier that crashes in the, uh, in the stage show. Uh, it is a replica of one that is found where? And again, you know the answer to that. Give us a call at 514-790-0800 or text to 514-800. And I'd still like to know who starred in the movie version, the 2004 movie version as the Phantom and uh, who played the Phantom in the Canadian touring show. And I gave you a hint that he had also played a mannequin in a children's show on the CBC. That show, show was called Today's Special. All right, so uh, you should be able to track those things down on the uh, internet. Just uh, get ready and start uh, Googling. Okay, I know you guys want to learn stuff, so 
learn something about lobsters and carrots. <clears throat> Believe it or not, shrimp, lobsters, they have something in common with carrots. They have a good dose of carotenoids in their body. Now, these are yellow-orange compounds that are quite widespread in nature. But the first one ever isolated was beta-carotene from carrots, which gave the name to the whole family. But they're also responsible for the coloring of orange juice, red peppers, watermelon, tomatoes, egg yolks, apricots, corn, pink grapefruit, pink salmon, and uh, pink flamingos. Lobsters and shrimp dine on plankton, which contain carotenoids, and these compounds become concentrated in the shell. But in that shell, they are bound up with proteins, and the carotenoid protein complex has a dark green color. When the protein is heated, it is denatured. In other words, it breaks down and it dissociates from the reddish carotenoid. And uh, in the case of the shellfish, that particular one is astaxanthin. And that now becomes visible. To a smaller extent, this is also evident in cooked carrots, which become more orange than they were before. The effect is not as great as with lobsters because carrots do not have uh, much protein. All right, let's go to the lines. And I think Jeff has a question. Jeff. Hi, Dr. Hey. Joe. Three questions. Okay. Three questions, please. I was, born in, I was born in 1955. My wife in 1959. Okay. Can I assume we've both been vaccinated for smallpox? Yes. Smallpox. Yes. Okay. Yes, you have been vaccinated. Okay, next. Second question. Flat screen TVs. Do they use more or less electricity than the previous tube TVs? Less. Less, okay. Less. Last yeah. question. We've recently okay. been through both Winter Summer Olympics, the high-speed races, Winter Olympics, like for the speed skating, the skaters dress with hoods combined to their uh tracksuit to their tracksuit. Right. Summer Olympics, often in the high-speed races, the 100, 200, four times 200-meter races, the races, racers, you see them with earrings, watches, rings, and often the girls wear their hair on the top of their head. The races come down to a hundredth of a second often. Don't you think that's an obvious Yes. Uh, yeah. Right. You're, you're, yeah. The interesting observation because uh, when it comes down to the hundreds of a second, which it often does, you know, in the hundred meter run, uh, air resistance is is important, and of course that's why they uh, they tend to wear the the tight, uh, you know, lycra shorts and the uh, lycra shirts so that they don't flap uh, in in the breeze. But I, I, I think that, uh, you know, yeah, you're right. Is, is that accoutrements like, like 
earrings, especially larger ones, might make a difference. I mean, we certainly see this in swimming, right? I mean, look at the extent that swimmers go to to minimize uh, the resistance. Uh, they, you know, the the men shave their their bodies to you For know sure. to get rid of the hair. So, yeah, uh, it's uh, yeah, that's an interesting comment. Okay, well, thanks very much. Thank you. Okay, bye. All right, we are coming to the end of the show today. And as I told you at the beginning, Phantom is coming to the end of its run in New York. Last performance starts in an hour. The curtain will rise for the last time. So uh, let's uh, let you hear another great little piece from Phantom. And uh, so let me kind of uh, let you go today with uh, thinking of Phantom of the Opera. In a while, please promise me you'll try. Then you'll find that once again you long to take your heart back and be free. If you ever find a moment, spare all thoughts from me. Well, you, you'll find that moment again here next week. Same time, same station. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>